again, we turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2, the last verse. We want to read on into chapter 3. I want to especially be concentrating on verse 6, but I want to read beginning with chapter 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then we have the immediate consequence. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Once again, let's pray for the help of God as we seek to open up and understand his word. Holy Father, we thank you. We bless you that you give it unto us this compact account of the most tragic event in the history of the world. And we are not detached from that which we just read. This is not just some ancient myth that is irrelevant to us, except maybe a little interesting to read. But we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that we were there, and not only were we there, but we are still there. And we still say and do and think and act upon these very same principles that we read here in this passage. Help us, Lord, to repent of our sin. Help us to turn to you. Help us to be governed by your word. To that end, we pray that even now your spirit would be pleased to show us the teaching of your word. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. From ancient times right on up to the present time, men have sought for ways to achieve everlasting life, or at least a prolonged life. One of the most ancient myths that was passed on from generation to generation was the Mesopotamian myth, the Gilgamesh epic. It has some resemblances to the biblical account of creation, and also of the flood later on, and uh, We think that it is probably so because there are some remnants of the true story that filter down even in this pagan environment. Well, in the Gilgamesh epic, after the death of his friend Enkidu, Gilgamesh searches for a way to have everlasting life. And this search takes him to Utnapishtim, the only human who has ever achieved such life. 
and Utnapishtim's reward it came as a result of his heroic role in the universal flood. So Gilgamesh can't achieve everlasting life in that way, as it's the opportunity's gone. The flood hero, however, he holds out some hope for Gilgamesh. He tells him about a plant whose thorns will prick your hand like a rose. And if your hands reach that plant, you will become a young man again. So Gilgamesh, he dives deep into the waters and he retrieves the plant. But before he's able to eat this life-giving plant, a serpent comes along and eats it. And in this manner, therefore, the serpent is the one that achieves life, or at least perpetual youth, as it perpetually and periodically sheds its skin while denying Gilgamesh the possibility of everlasting life. Well, in this ancient mythical poem, there is a garbled resemblance to the biblical creation account. And the resemblance lies in the way that the serpent foils man's chance to inherit eternal life. But in the Gilgamesh epic, it is the serpent that achieves everlasting life. And since this early Mesopotamian myth, there have been many legends of a mythical spring called the Fountain of Youth. It was said to restore your youth by drinking of its water or bathing in its streams. And for thousands of years, tales of this fountain were included in the writings of Herodotus in the 5th century BC, the Alexander Romance of the 3rd century AD, and the Prester John documents of the early Crusades. And this legend of the Fountain of Youth that became most famous in connection with the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon, who searched for this fountain in Florida in 1513. Now in 21st century, coming all the way up until our own present time, to my knowledge there is no widespread myth that people are following and trying to adopt and figure out where this fountain is, a fountain of youth. And yet there are plenty of ways in which our society seeks to cheat death of as many years as possible. Back in the days when I was supporting myself doing carpentry work and roofing work, and as a roofer you would have to sling the shingles over your shoulder and climb a ladder, and it was very damaging to my spine and to my neck. And my neck was locked into a position like this. I couldn't raise it. I had to go to a chiropractor. And Chiropractors, some of them are, are legitimate, some of them not so legitimate. And in this particular case, I found immediate relief from the, the uh, adjustment that I received from this uh, doctor. But before I got this adjustment, I had to watch a film about chiropractic. And this film promised to turn on the forces of life. And if people would just all get chiropractic, we would all live to 150 years old. Well, as I watched that and I thought, this is a bunch of crock. Has this guy that made this film ever read Genesis chapter 3? Has he ever read the Bible? Has he ever read of the fall and its effects on mankind? And so obviously that part of my visit there was something that I rejected out of hand. But there are also supplements, of course, that they claim if you get on one of these clickbaits, Oh, there are these things that we found on a certain island, and the people live to 120 years old over there. And if we just all take this pill that costs you about $200 a bottle, you too will live for a long time. And of course, if you can't add years to your life, 
At least also there are some suggest that maybe you could have a little plastic surgery and it'll make you at least look younger. So in all these different ways, we are looking to cheat death. Now beginning with the Gilgamesh epic and coming right down to our present day, there's an element which is consistently missing in all of these efforts to discover everlasting or at least longer life. And the thing that's missing from all these tales and efforts is any concerted effort to discover the true cause of the suffering and the death that has spread universally throughout the human race. It is the Genesis account alone that probes the roots and the real cause of the entrance of sin into the human race. And it's only when we come to grips with the cause of all this misery and death throughout this human race, only then will we be prepared for the correct solution. Genesis 3 provides us with the divinely inspired account of the entrance of sin into the world. And until we listen to God's account of the true cause of suffering and death, the best we can do is have a few band-aids for temporary relief. Now, apart from the Bible, every philosophy, every system of thought throughout history is deficient at this point. And if you debate an unbeliever, one of the things that you can use, I think, very effectively, is to try to explain to them why we do the terrible things we do to one another as a human race. Human philosophy, it, it can't explain such a thing. It can't give you a satisfactory explanation of human sin. Animals don't do to each other what we do to each other. And yes, there are beasts of prey, but they're just acting out of instinct and for the purpose of survival. But human beings wound and kill constantly with their lies and brutality and wanton murder and systematic genocide. And why is this? Genesis 3 tells us why. And the rest of the Bible explains that beginning with Adam, sin has spread throughout all of humanity. Jesus also explains that sin is not some kind of a physical phenomenon. It's not something that can be solved by drinking a certain water from a certain fountain or taking a certain pill. It comes from within. It comes out of the heart because of the way our hearts have all been defiled by sin. Now here in Genesis chapter 3, we have an account of the way in which Satan, using a beautiful alluring serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and thereby initiating the sin and the misery that has afflicted the human race ever since. Just by way of review, you will notice, and this is also emphasized in the outlines there, our first two sermons on these verses that we read, they concentrated on what is the first point of the outline, the dialogue of temptation, verses 1 to 5. And there were four stages in this dialogue. First of all, there was the serpent's question. The first half of verse 1, he asks, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, God had generously provided all the trees and had only restricted one. But Satan wants to imply that God is mean-hearted and selfish. He's obsessively jealous. He's made all these loaded trees with delicious fruit and he, he's a meanie. He says, no, you can't have any of this. That's the way he paints it. And then there are Eve's revisions, secondly, in verses 2 to 3. She diminishes God's word by taking out the word every tree. She adds to God's word by adding the words, you shall not touch it. And she softens God's word by taking out and, re and replacing the words, you shall surely die with lest you die. She revises, you see, 
in her entertaining of this temptation. And these revisions paved the way in the third place for the, this aspect of the dialogue, the serpent's contradiction. In verse 4 we read, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And God gave this solemn reason for obeying his command, not to eat the fruit of the garden. For in the day of it you shall surely die. But Satan says you surely will not die. It was a direct frontal attack on God's earlier threat. It was an in-your-face contradiction of God. So, so far, the pathology, you see, of this dialogue is very clear. In the first phase, Satan poses a question based on a perversion of God's word. In the second phase, Eve begins to question God's word. And then now in this third phase, Satan boldly declares that God's word is simply wrong. And then this brought us to the fourth phase of this dialogue, the serpent's insinuation. And this is found in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now Satan, he moves from God's word to being false, to God's heart being false. He claims the ability to penetrate God's mind and to know what God knows. He says, far from bringing damaging repercussions upon you if you eat this fruit, this fruit is going to have lots of blessings to you. It'll make you godlike. It'll make you good. You'll be able to know good and evil like God's. Your eyes will be open to new and exciting dimensions that, that you've never experienced. And up to this point, they knew good. They knew what it is to receive good from God's hand. They knew evil. It was forbidden. They knew what it was to stay away from that. What they did not know yet was the experience of evil, the evil of sin. And this is what Satan wants to introduce them to. But even worse than these half-truths about good and evil was Satan's slander against God. He portrays God as forbidding this fruit because God's not really good. God's a stingy God. He's a selfish tyrant meanie. He withholds from Adam and Eve that which would achieve their godlike potential. So simply put, Satan's words were an attack on the goodness of God. He lured them into doubting God's heart for them. And he gave them two lures, two baits. He used the lure of divinity, you'll be like God's. And he used the lure of moral autonomy. He convinced Eve that she could make the decision all on her own. She could autonomously decide what's right and wrong. She doesn't have to submit to what God says. She can do it her way. Well, this is what took place there in this dialogue of temptation. But now we come this morning in the second place in the outline of this passage to the folly of transgression. And we find this especially in verse 6, also verse 7, but I want to read especially verse 6 again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now in these words, we have a description of three things. A description of Eve's deception, a description of Adam's transgression, and a description of sin's denudation, which is found in the next verse, in verse 7. And we're going to concentrate our attention on the first two of those things. First of all, Notice with me Eve's deception. 
beginning of verse 6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Now most of you are quite familiar, I think, with John Bunyan's immortal allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. Those of you that have been around for a while, we studied it as a congregation some time ago. But lesser known and yet exceedingly edifying is another allegory that John Bunyan wrote. It's the allegory known as the Holy War. And of course, he's not talking about a, an Islamic jihad. He's talking about the Holy War against, against man's heart. And at the beginning of this allegory, Bunyan depicts the soul of man as a walled city. And he calls the soul of man, he calls the name of this city Mansoul. And when it was first built and inhabited, the city was the fairest city in all of the earth. And reigning supreme in this city was one called Shaddai, the maker and benefactor of the whole city. And this king governed this city with the most excellent laws. And for its strength, the city may be called a castle, for its pleasantness a paradise. The city was well stocked with the best provisions. Nobody ever went hungry in this city. There was no need that was not met. There was not a single rogue, not a single rascal or traitor within the walls of this city. It was perfectly peaceful. There was no dissension whatsoever. The city also was surrounded by impenetrable walls. And this city had five gates, Bunyan tells us. And these Gates could only be opened at the will of those that are in the city. They couldn't be opened from the outside. These five gates had these names, ear gate, eye gate, mouth gate, nose gate, and field gate. And with the passing of time, however, an assault was made on this city by a mighty giant called Diabolus. And if I had time, I could tell you how Diabolus, he became the enemy of Shaddai, and of this city, but we'll have to pass over that part of Bunyan's story. And in the interest of time, that's, uh, what I want to do is go right to the time when Diabolus then makes an assault on man's soul. And the first thing he did was approach Eargate, the place of hearing in this city. And here let me relate a few sentences from his speech. He gave a long speech to Eargate, where the people could gather and they could hear what he was saying. Gentlemen of the famous town of Mansoul, I am, as you may perceive, one that is found by the king to do you my homage and what service I can. I am come to show you how you may obtain great and ample deliverance from a bondage that unawares you were captivated and enslaved under. I have something to say to you concerning your king, concerning his law, and also touching yourselves. Touching your king, I know that he is great and potent, but yet, all that he has said to you is neither true nor yet for your advantage. It is not true, for that he has hitherto awed you, you shall not come to pass. It shall not come to pass. And touching his laws, this I say, they are both, un both unreasonable and intricate and intolerable. The fruit of which you are forbidden to eat, for instance, this is which is able to, by your eating to minister to you good. It is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you have that... And have you that knowledge yet? No, no. Nor can you conceive how good, how pleasant, how much to be desired to make one wise. Oh, you inhabitants of the famous town of Mansoul, you were not a free people. 
You are kept in bondage and slavery, and that by a grievous threat, no reason being annexed, but so I will have it. Well, I've condensed his speech, and with other words like these, Diabolus addressed Eargate and all who were gathered there to hear. And just then, while he was speaking, one of his soldiers shot at Captain Resistance, who was standing behind the wall over Eargate, and Captain Resistance fell down dead over the edge of the wall. And time will not allow me to give you Diabolus's full speech, and the speech then of Ilpaz, who was also on his side, who spoke up in his behalf. But suffice it to say that when the town folk saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, they took of its fruit, and they ate. And in this manner, the inhabitants of Mansoul were persuaded to open ear gate, but then also to open another gate, eye gate. And Diabolus and his army entered the city, and the inhabitants of Mansoul, they all became Diabolus' slaves. Well, what we studied so far in verses 1 to 5, this tells us all about the way in which Satan entered through ear gate. He was talking, you see, a talking serpent. We don't know how that took place, but he was communicating words, to ear, and he was entering through ear gate. And now in verse 6, we are told how eye gate was also opened wide to let him in. And in this verse, we are told three things that appeal to Eve's eyes. And in these ways, lustful desires, covetous desires, and many other sinful desires enter our soul. They enter through the gate of our eyes, through what we see. First of all, there is the physical appeal. Eve, we read, saw that the tree was good for food. And here we have the same Hebrew word that's repeatedly translated good in chapter 1. Again and again, you remember how that, that chapter reads. When God made something, he saw that it was good. And then on the last day, he saw that it was very good, everything that he had made. It's the same word. And the play on words, you see, it underscores that in the woman's fallen state, the fruit appears to be good in her eyes. Like all the other things appear to be good, if you just saw by your eyes. Based on what she sees, the fruit looks like it is good for food, both in terms of its flavor and its nourishment. And instead of being looked upon with fear because of what the Lord had said about it, because it was forbidden by God and therefore evil, instead of looking upon it with fear, she looks upon it in a different way now. It looks good to her. And so it is when we sin. There is an inversion. There's a turning of up. It's, it's everything's turned upside down. What should be seen by us to be evil and therefore to be avoided is seen to be good in our eyes. And so Eve has now bought the line that independently of what God says and based on what she sees, she's qualified to determine what's good and what's evil. God says one thing, her eyes tell her another thing, and she goes with what she sees, not with what God says. So this is, first of all, what we have here, this physical appeal. And then in the second place, there is the aesthetic appeal. Eve saw that the tree was, and here we quote, pleasant to the eyes. 
The Hebrew word that's translated pleasant, it's used in Job 33.20 to describe someone's favorite dish. It's something really pleasant, something, you know, just think about your favorite meal. That's the whole picture of, of what she, what was communicated and what she experienced when she saw this, that which was pleasant to her eyes. Now in one sense, Eve's assessment of the fruit is accurate. In chapter 2 and verse 9, we read that of all the trees that God created in the garden, they were all pleasant to the sight. And that would have included this tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were all pleasant to the sight. That's what she sees with her eyes. It's something that's pleasant to her eyes. But again, her assessment assumes an autonomous posture. Yes, God has made it plain to, pleasant to the eyes. But God has told her also about that particular tree. It was for, strictly forbidden. And that eating from that tree would have fatal consequences. In Proverbs 6 and verse 25, God says of the seductress who appeals to the young man's eyes, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure her you with her eyelids. It's an appeal to the eyes. First of all, that just would strike one's young man's, he just looks at her face, but then he goes further than that in his imagination. In Matthew 5 and verse 28, Jesus says, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's speaking again of the eye gate, of how that sin comes into the heart. And yes, God has made that woman beautiful, just like he made this tree of knowledge of good and evil beautiful. But what you see, and you look to, uh, what you see, it leads you to that lingering lustful look. It has become sin. That's the way it was with Eve. And the same principle is work in the sin of covetousness. God had commanded the complete destruction of everything in Jericho, lest any of it become a snare to the Israelites, and also that this would be the first fruits as an offering, so to speak, unto the Lord, as they would conquer the land. But when it was discovered that Achan had disobeyed the strict order, this is what Achan said. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw, it was the eye gate, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. The Tenth Commandment also forbids covetousness. And Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And like lust, covetousness, it enters our hearts through what Bunyan calls the eye gate. It comes through seeing what another person has that I don't have. It's not to be coveted because God is the one that gave that person that thing that I don't have, but he has. And it comes through what's on display, for instance, at the ball. Covetousness gets stirred up. It comes through maybe what you watch on the Home and Gardens channel. Nothing wrong with that. You can watch it in the right way, but it can lead to covetousness. It's one thing, objectively, you see, to notice something attractive. But when that thing that you see excites a craving in you to have what you can't afford, it, or it's something for which you would be not wise not to spend your money, 
then that craving is covetousness. And when the thing that's craved is craved because in your pride you want to be admired for that beautiful dress or maybe flashy car or that magnificent house, the dream house you see on that show, your admiration of that thing at that point has become covetousness. And it's entered, you see, your heart through what you see. So there is then this second thing, this aesthetic appeal. Eve saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes. And then thirdly, there is the intellectual appeal. She saw that the tree was, quote, desirable to make one wise. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated desirable is, is mainly used in a negative sense in the Old Testament to describe inordinate and ungoverned selfish desire. It's a term that's often translated covetousness, as in the Tenth Commandment or the verb form covet. And in this place, the thing that's dangled in front of Eve's eyes, it was something that the servant said would impart a hidden, exciting knowledge and experience that couldn't be known apart from indulging in that which was forbidden by God. And in this place, Satan was promising a kind of knowledge that was connected with straying outside the boundaries of what God had said. Now, there are two kinds of wisdom. There is virtuous wisdom. There is evil wisdom. And which wisdom you seek, it depends on how you seek it. And when it's obtained in dependence upon God, when the wisdom is obtained in conformity to God's word, the knowledge of good and evil is a virtue. Because you are confined to God's word. You know the evil, you know the, the, what the Bible says about it, and you know the virtue because of what the Bible says about it. And you keep to that. It's a virtue. And this is the kind of wisdom that's especially found in God's word. But that kind of wisdom, on the other hand, that's obtained independently and is obtained in contradiction to God's word, such knowledge, you see, is a dark kind of knowledge that God never intends for you and me to have. For example, the knowledge of that which is obtained by reading Fifty Shades of Grey or by visiting websites of filth, this is not the kind of knowledge that you need to have. Or the kind of familiarity with worldly philosophy that's obtained by becoming part of the intellectual elite at Harvard and becoming one of these bigwig thinkers and getting on the, the talk shows or, or getting on, the, on, on, the, on the, the speaking circuit. That kind of knowledge and that kind of fame oftentimes is associated with worldly wisdom, ungodly wisdom. Or the kind of wisdom that's gained by catering to the literary or to the political elites of our age. Such so-called wisdom, it caters to your proud desire to be accepted and to be admired in the world. And it can happen in all kinds of ways. It can happen in the computer world. It can happen in Hollywood. It can happen in many different ways. It's a kind of wisdom it is contrary to God's word. Well, the description of Eve's temptation, it runs the gamut of every kind of enticement you see. From the coarse sensuality of good for food to the aesthetic pleasure of pleasant to the eyes to the intellectual enticement of that which was desired to make one wise. And in this description, we have a remarkable parallel to the threefold description that is found of, of the world and the love of the world in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Here is what John Bunyan is describing in his holy war at the beginning. Once the awe-inspiring sense of God's command and the fear, the dread of the fearful ruin that results from disobedience, once these realities fade from our minds, our hearts are like a city without walls. And the enemy can march right in. We throw wide open the ear gate and the eye gate. And Diabolus and his minions are free to march right in. Well, after the threefold description of what went on in Eve's heart with remarkable simplicity, the text then describes the sin as it came to fruition in act. The end of verse 6, we simply read this. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband. Now you would think that with the most tragic event in the history of mankind, there'd be a whole lot more description than that. It's so simply stated. The Bible's first recorded sin, it's limited to eight words in the Hebrew text. God's command seemed insubstantial. And now she can see no reason not to eat. So she took the fruit she ate. And Moses expresses no shock here. She just took it, she ate. Seems like nothing happens. On the contrary, says Von Rad, the unthinkable and terrible is described as simply and unsensationally as possible. And from the human perspective, it's all portrayed in a completely undramatic way. And yet it was cosmic eternal and as it is compactly and as it is pointedly portrayed in John Milton's paradise lost earth felt the wound and nature from her seat sighing through all her works gave signs of woe that all was lost but we must be careful not to think of the rebellious act of taking and eating as a second sin after the initial sin of desire. We must not separate these things. Sin's a complex thing. The outward act of taking the fruit, eating it, it was interwoven with the inner sinful desire. James reminds us that when desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. James 1.15 And the complex, you see, of sinful thoughts and desires It was crystallized now in Eve's deliberate choice to please herself and to displease God. And by this tragic act, it's all as it were crystallized. She took, she ate, she gave. In his book, Temptation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he powerfully draws the connection between desire and act Bonhoeffer was the man that gave his life up in opposing Hitler. But he was also a pastor. He wrote some wonderful things. He wrote this book on temptation. And he connects desire and act. As all of us experience the awful reality of the knowledge of good and evil. Just let me read just a few sentences here. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce with irresistible power desire seizes mastery over the flesh all at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled the flesh burns and is into flames 
All at once, a secret smolder. Uh, the flesh burns. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for fr- revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world. The burning desire. Joy in God is extinguished in us. And we seek all our joy in the creature. And at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And the only desire for the creature is is that's the only thing that's real. You see, Satan doesn't fill us up with hatred for God directly, but forgetfulness of God. And the lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. Dear people, let this description sink into our hearts. Satan's great aim is to pry you away from God. That's what he's aiming at. And he wants to drag you down into the darkness of hell. And this, too, is the awful result of sin. Even if you are a believer, this is what sin does to you. It makes God seem unreal to you at the moment. And with God gone, light is gone, and darkness begins to fill your soul. Well, so far we've concentrated on Eve's deception. We come now to our second heading, Adam's transgression. At the end of verse 6, we read this simple statement. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, artists regularly portray her as a temptress. And she's always got an apple in her hand. All these paintings you see, she has an apple, even though the common fruit that grows in the Mideast, the fruits are not apples, but they're commonly fig trees and date trees and pomegranate trees. And again, the simplicity of the account is stunning. There's nothing in these words that indicates that she tries to seduce her husband. She simply gives to him, and he takes. He doesn't challenge her. He doesn't raise any questions about it. Now, Adam appears to be a full participant, therefore, in the act. This verse speaks of her husband being with her. In other words, he was standing next to her the whole time. He was privy to the whole conversation with the serpent, but he doesn't intervene at a single point. And while hers is the sin of initiative, his is the sin of abdication of his responsibility as her head. And his is the sin of complete acquiescence in the whole affair. Now throughout the whole of the temptation, he is associated with her and what's taking place. And as she hands him the fruit, his is the final and decisive completion of the disobedience. And here we need to remember that Adam was charged to guard and to protect the garden, chapter 2 and verse 15. His duty was to protect the garden from intruders. And furthermore, Adam has been given authority to name and rule over every other creature in the garden. God's original charge to Adam was fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, And over every living thing that moves on the earth, that includes serpents. And right from the start, when the serpent first appears, 
when the serpent makes his first devious question, Adam should have been right there commanding this serpent to get out of the garden. That was his job. But when he allowed the serpent to play the mind games with his wife, quietly taking in everything that's being said, instead of exercising his judicial authority over the serpent, he lets the serpent be the lawgiver. Adam stands by. He abdicates his responsibility. And to those that want to blame the whole thing on Eve, we say that at least Eve tried to put up some arguments. Adam doesn't even put up arguments against the sin. He just caved in without comment. Now one distinguished scholar has said that Milton's statement of Adam's reason for sinning namely to stand by his wife even if she went to hell, was the most sublime thing in Milton's paradise lost. But we would say that, yes, Adam did side with Eve. And he sided with the serpent also against God. But there was nothing sublime about it. He completely abdicated his responsibility. And even though Paul notes that the woman was deceived, he was insistent Paul was that Adam was not deceived in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he tells us that, that Adam is especially guilty. Adam sinned willfully. He sins with his eyes wide open. His sin that bore the full freight, you see, of sinful self-interest. He's watched Eve eat the fruit. Nothing seems to happen. He assumes that nothing is going to happen to him. He sins willfully and defiantly. He joins Satan in rebelling against God. Satan portrayed God as a tyrant and himself as looking out for the best interests of Adam and Eve. And as Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he declared, as it were, that the serpent was right and God was the liar. As R. Kent Hughes notes, everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. The result was seismic. Dear ones, as we take all of this in, this should fill our hearts with sorrow. I think if we really felt the whole weight of it as a congregation, we would all be gushing with tears right now as we think about what happened. The sin of our first parents was a great sin. And we are not neutral observers to this sin. Paul tells us that we all sinned in Adam. And lest any of us think that this was unfair, we can also be assured that we would have made the same choice. And this count, it tells us, you see, what all of us would do under identical circumstances. This isn't just a story about Adam and Eve. This is a story about you. It's a story about me. It's a story about our great sin. It's a story of our apostasy from God. We sided with the serpent against God. Satan accused God of being a liar. He accused him of being envious. He accused him of being a tyrant. And when we sit even now, what do we do? We treat God as if Satan is right about all that. How could we bear the thought of such sin? How could we think of it without weeping? Well, we're going to have to leave the third point 
for our next time, it will fit a, a good introduction to the next part of the passage, the sin's denudation, the way it, it stripped Adam and Eve of their consciousness of or their innocence. They discovered that they were naked, verse 7. But what I want to do is I want to take just a, a few moments here before we close and say a couple things by way of application. First of all, if you and I would avoid the folly of sin, we must acquire the wisdom of God's word. It's God's word that Adam and Eve should have treasured up in their hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We sang that in the hymn right before this sermon. The dialogue between the serpent and the woman, Eve's deception, Adam's disobedience with his eyes wide open, all of this highlights the fact that wisdom is the issue here. In our first sermon on this passage, we noted that the serpent was shrewd. He was cunning. He had a devious kind of wisdom. And the opposite of this is the wisdom that fears the Lord, the wisdom that's stressed in the book of Proverbs. And the only way to repel the subtlety of Satan is by acquiring true wisdom. And where is this wisdom to be found? This wisdom is to be found in the word of God. If you want to wrestle with Satan successfully, then make the Bible your daily companion. This is the armory that our Savior used again and again when he was tempted by the devil. David asked the Lord, With what shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to your word. So let's learn to fight Satan with an it is written because no weapon is going to set Satan on his heels faster than scripture. If Adam in his innocence before there was any indwelling sin to lead him astray if Adam in that state even then if Adam could fall how much more you and me when we're tempted. Let's remember that just as we were regenerated by the word we who are true believers We are sanctified by the word. We are kept by the word. Moses, who gave us this account, he was always passionate about this issue of God's people being people of the word. In Deuteronomy, his fifth uh, final book, in the chapter that follows the giving of the Ten Commandments, he eloquently calls his people to put God's word central in all of their life. And these words, he says, that I command you this day shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you are in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6. And then at the end of that same book, The book of Deuteronomy is something of one great sermon at the end of Moses' life. After Moses has completed his writing of the Torah, he's put it next to the Ark of the Covenant. He sang a song, and the song ended with these words, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do the words of this law, For it is no empty word for you. It is your very life. He gives them two two choices. He says, 
Choose what you're going to have. Choose life or choose death. What you're going to have. And how do you make that choice? You make that choice by God's word. This is your very life. This became the standard for the Old Testament. The book of Psalms that opens up with a call to make the word central. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And you take the longest chapter in all the Bible, Psalm 119. 22 parts, an acrostic. And it goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. And it's, it's saying in effect that God's word is everything from A to Z. You need to treasure up this word. This is what's going to sanctify you. This is what's going to help you in the days of temptation. So you need to be in the word. And don't just wait till Sunday to hear a little bit of it for an hour. You need to be in it every day. And then secondly, in addition to the word and above all, we need to look to incarnate wisdom for true wisdom. We need to look to Jesus, our second Adam. Jesus is the chief refuge of the tempted soul. Therefore, we need to flee to the Lord Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He has made to us wisdom. He's incarnate wisdom. We need to learn to stay close by the side of Jesus, to learn everything we can from him. The disciples were called to be with Jesus. And let's remember that as a sheep, we are never safer than when we're close to our shepherd. And therefore, let's seek to live in communion with Jesus. Let's learn to walk as Jesus walked. And when Jesus is tempted, what does he do? Unlike the first Adam, he immediately goes to God's word. He believes that. As opposed to all the sights of the world that Satan shows him. He doesn't go by the eye gate, you see. He goes by God's word. And he says, it's written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. And him only you shall serve. And I wonder if prior to those 40 days in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. I can't help but think that Jesus, right before then, he was having his devotions in the book of Deuteronomy. It's hard for me to imagine anything else, but maybe not. Three times he turns away Satan's devious temptations with a well-selected statement from that dear book. And I would say to you that do not know this, Lord Jesus, that I've been preaching just for a moment here. You're not going to find wisdom outside of Jesus. You can find a devious, worldly wisdom, the kind that the devil offers, but you won't find eternal, everlasting wisdom that's going to stand you in good stead in eternity, apart from Jesus. You need to go to him to find this wisdom, to find deliverance in him. And, and you, as believers, continue to go to him. And for all of us, in the, in the discouraging days that we're going through, and these days in which it seems like we're going from bad to worse as a country, and when it seems sometimes even as Christians we go from bad to worse, and we're not making the progress that we want to make. Let's remember that the city that Bunyan talks about, the city of man's soul, is not the end of the story. The end of the road is a glorious city. There's going to come a day when you're going to look down from that glorious city 
on the arch fiend and all of his minions with laughter and with derision. Just like the Israelites were filled with jubilation when they saw the dead Egyptians on the shore and had sought to kill them. And you're going to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. At last, at last, you will be free from the deceptions of the evil one. And you will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Oh, how, 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 what a wonderful day that will be. May it come quickly. May the Lord help us to walk in hope until that great and that glorious day. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we confess that the things that we have preached are not complicated. They're simply set before us in your word. And it's not because they're so complicated that we don't follow them and embrace them. It's because of the treachery that we find in our own hearts. We confess, O oh Lord, that in so many ways, even as believers, we have not known you as we have ought, as we ought. We have not feared you as we ought. We have not loved you as we ought. We've trifled with the things of the world. We've trifled with that which is pleasant to the eyes, that which promises to make us worldly wise. Oh, we plead with you, Lord, that you would help us to be people of the book, to be governed night and day by this book, to be governed as a church by this book, as pastors and as people alike. And, O oh Lord, our God, we do pray that we would commend this book to those that are around us, that they would see that we take this book seriously. We pray that our children would see that we are like those ones that Moses exhorted in the past to write these precepts on our walls and to talk of them when we're on the way, to read of them. We have many copies of the Bible. They didn't even have copies of the Bible back then. They had just little tidbits. Help us, Lord, to eagerly devour the riches of your word by which we might resist temptation. And we plead with you, O Lord, that some that are here outside of your kingdom, that are deceived by the world and by the devil, by their own hearts, may this be the day in which true wisdom comes into their hearts, a wisdom that comes only through being united together by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.